of the Ellen Powell episode of the Series B show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones. In part one, Ellen discussed her upbringing um, as a first-generation immigrant, how that uh, shaped her perspective on education and, and an emphasis on STEM. She talked about her uh, experiences in school, both at Princeton and Harvard Law and Harvard Business School, and her first uh, entree into the, into the working world. In this episode, she'll discuss how she really got steeped in the startup space in Silicon Valley, uh, how she thought about opportunities, how she came across what she considered at the time the opportunity of a lifetime to be right-hand woman to John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins, uh, probably the premier venture capital firm of, of the time, and how after getting in that role, um, she felt that she was an outsider within the space, um, which really changed her view of the world and kind of her focus now moving forward. So really interesting episode. Hope you enjoy. I always was intrigued by the idea of consulting different companies because I was never sure how people actually structure that. Yeah. I know a bunch of people, classmates, et cetera, who, who do that. How does that come to be? How do you market yourself as a consultant? How do you match make with different companies? Like, How does that work for people? I was super lucky. I had wanted to take some time off after telling me, like, it was super intense. We were working, like, 6.30 in the morning till, you know, midnight, 1 o'clock. People were living there. You know, there were, like, loft beds. Angus Davis, every morning, I'd see him, like, climb off the loft bed in front of my desk and go brush his teeth and get changed and showered. So it was a very intense experience. I wanted to take some time off. But then, um, you know, with the move to Enterprise, a few other people had left, and one of my friends was plugged into the folks at my CFO and they needed somebody to help out with business development. And I said, all right, why not? You know, I'll work part-time. It will be a way to make some money. And I ended up um, working with them for a while. And then the the, and the Andy Rubin gig came up because I saw that Andy and Joe Britt had left Web TV and started this stealth company. And it was like they were... You know, known at WebTV for being really creative and being really great engineers, and I really had was curious, like, what were they working on? They had this um, awesome name for their company, and they had all these cool graphics, and um, so I ended up just going to see what they were working on. They needed help in uh, pulling together their, you know, financing and you know, getting started, and I ended up doing a bunch of different things there. But it was a great group of people again. And how do you? How do you set up the like the relationship? Are you at that point when you're consulting? Are you using their business card and to the external world you're an employee? Are you kind of a service provider who's just working on these things as like a you know a? It varies. It depends on the company and what they you know and how you want to. It depends on what you're doing. So for my CFO, I was helping to. Uh, negotiate a bunch of service contracts. Um, it was a company where you were really trying to get all the information from all your different financial accounts. So we had to negotiate with all these different financial services to connect with so that we could get the information from them. So that was you know dealing with bigger companies. So 
they wanted me to carry the MyCFO kind of name and not go in as like I'm a consultant and I want to negotiate this really sensitive information mm -hmm. over to the company that I'm not even full-time working for. Mm -hmm. um, with Danger Research, I didn't end up doing much business development. I ended up mostly helping them with fundraising and helping them with like getting their product out. It, they were so small, it was so early that it was, you know, they didn't have anything for me to go and negotiate around. I, it was more of a, like, let me see what I can help you with until you're ready to do business development and then maybe we can talk about full-time role. And do you have, at least in that interim period, do you have a conversation around like compensation or, or what, you, what you're getting in exchange for the work or is it implicit that the experience itself is worthwhile enough to pursue? For me, it was, you know, I wanted to make some money. I'm used to making money and I'm used to spending within my means. So mm -hmm. I wasn't very comfortable not having had a job for a little while and um, and then getting into earlier and earlier startups. So I negotiated and, you know, each company had a different way they wanted to compensate me. Um, I should have negotiated for equity with Danger, but I ended up just taking cash. And it was a good experience. I met some awesome people they ended up shipping great product and they you know you you get tied to the company even as a consultant where you kind of follow their path and you see where they end up going um and then when andy started android i almost joined as one of their first five employees but then they got acquired by google so mm -hmm. i ended up going into venture capital instead okay and it's weird because equity seems to be Interesting because most times you want to set up so that it invests over time before like a contract role or where you're consulting. Yeah. How does that work? Do you just, did they just basically give you the, does it vest after the No, six I should months? have gotten equity. I didn't. Okay. So I hired a bunch of people. When I was at Reddit, we had a bunch of contractors. So there were, there were people who um, didn't want to join full time or they weren't sure about Reddit because it was going through all these changes. And we would give them equity that would vest over time or monthly and it would be you know and so then it would be like a very small amount investing every month got it okay so you're consulting and then you're like okay i'm ready to, to actually step forward and, and position myself in a full-time role how did you make that decision as to where that was going to be i i can't remember i interviewed like everywhere i had been interviewing the whole time because i hadn't decided what I wanted to do and I wanted to talk to more people and to learn more and I ended up talking to a bunch of startups I talked to a few VC firms and then I liked BA because I liked the structure of it they were very clear about who owned business development and they and it was tied to corporate development so there, and there was one person who was heading all of it so it was a very clean structure WebTV had been structured a little bit like um, Sun. There were a lot of people from Sun, and it was like dual reporting, and it was fuzzy. And here it was like, okay, you have clear ownership of, of your area, and you'd be able to work with teams very easily, and it would be a lot more fun. And I liked the guy who was running the team, Dave. He seemed like he worked at, I can't remember what company. He'd worked at HT, HP for a long time. He really wanted to develop people and to help Build careers, and he seemed like he'd be a really good person to work with. Um, and, and, the, and it was an interesting area of technology. It was like the, you know, engine that powered all of the internet. So that was kind of exciting for me too. 
Okay. And so you were... It wasn't that is, thoughtful. I guess you were looking for like, what was the thing <laughs> no, that really you know, me? Was, I wish you keep it real, you know, people, what was going on at the time. Yeah. I think a lot of people, even now, you know, I have a lot of peers at different levels where there's always this sense of just figuring it out as you go along. It's never, you know, it's, looking back, it seems like people had clear paths to get wherever they had it all figured out. But the reality is almost like your professor who you spoke to, it's like things look great, but yeah. oftentimes people are just working with what's given to them at you know any given time so yeah it was so. a good group of people at the end of the day it was like pretty technical which i liked because i you know i wanted a company mm-hmm. where there was some there some there yeah. there was like you know at that time there were you know it had been you know like this whole dot-com boom and there were all these companies and when i went to interview with vc firms i didn't understand it i'm like what is the benefit of a pets.com? Like, what is the business model there? It was, I was like, I don't understand VC at all because they're super excited about this business that I can't grok. And so for me, going to a company that was building the software that built this engine for people to run their websites and they were making off of money off the websites or they were communicating with different people through their websites like and that was creating value and people were paying them for the software and for you know, and for new versions of the software and for servicing the software, like it made a lot of sense to me in this area where there was all of this fuzziness and eventually all of those business models collapsed. And this is, I guess, this is going down, the, the collapse is going down while you're in this role. It was at Tell Me Where the Collapse Happened. Okay. So they had raised tons of money. Like they were the, I don't know, the golden children of the darling, the darling, darling. Yeah, for a while because they had great story they're like you know super technical they'd all done interesting things and they were really charismatic and they were building this awesome vision and the the vision was something that we all believed in so we're all really excited about it we're all working really hard and there was this great experience and then the market collapsed but we had raised so much money that we weren't in any kind of um difficulty but so i got through the first bust, mm-hmm. the first bubble burst um, safely and mm-hmm. then and ended up at BA because I thought it was an interesting company. It was the first, it was the fastest company to get a billion to a billion dollars in revenues at that time. BA was. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, and, a, you know, it was, and you also obviously sorry. still very close in the, in the back of your mind is having watched this last collapse, like focusing on real businesses was a really important piece. Yeah, something that I could understand. Right. Okay. So, at this point, you mentioned that you were like, I don't even know if you were interviewing with VC firms before BA or not. I didn't, I can't remember one, but I did either when I was looking at these different startups um, or when I decided to join BA. But around that time, I was talking to a bunch of different VC firms. And so what was it specifically that got you really interested in the investing side? Because before that, you had kind of been on the front lines of BD and, and you were getting your hands really dirty. Yeah. You know, what was the kind of the, the thinking? You know, I didn't know very much about it. And okay. it was, again, I kind of just stumbled into it. It seemed like something that was very interesting and I wanted to learn more about it. There was a whole slew of people who were really excited about venture capital at the time. It was a thing to do. It was like, what if people aspired to do? And for me, I was just curious, like, what is this that people keep talking about? I didn't know very much about it at all. I didn't grow up... Um, you know, I don't think I learned about it until business school. Right. It was just something out there. That Nebulous concept that yeah. you hear, but what does it mean? Yeah. And 
at this point, I mean, your your resume, just like looking back at your resume, was was pretty was you know was the real deal. Um, and I would agree that VC seems to be kind of like this white ivory shining tower where it's like it's very uh, you know kind of in, in, encapsulated in this mystery and just what is it all about? And so I can imagine why that would be compelling. Um, so from what I've read. In 2005, you see a job description that literally there could not have been a more cookie cutter, like, you know, fit for you based on your background. And my background, as I told you, it was very random. For me, it was opportunity one at a time, not stitched together in any kind of cohesive way. And I said, wow, if somebody is looking for somebody that has done these things that I... So explain for the listeners, just explain how this kind of, because I read about it, but it's a really, really interesting kind of just, the match was just almost too good to be true in a lot of ways. Uh, What's the rationale? You're you're in a good place, you're at a a real business, uh, creating value, owning a good amount of uh, responsibility. I had started looking because the company was getting really big and at some point I would have to move to San Jose and I was living in the city and I was willing to do the commute, but the idea of moving to San Jose Jose was not 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 something I wanted to do. And this job description, a friend of mine passed it to me and it was like, they wanted somebody who had studied um, engineering, but it had to be computer science or electrical engineering. They wanted somebody who understood, um, who had a JD MBA, either done at the same time or separate and had to be from good schools. They wanted somebody who had worked at startups and a good startup. And that meant one that Kleiner Perkins had invested in and they had invested in both Tell Me and my CFO. They wanted somebody who had worked at the startup in either, to this day, I'm not sure why, um, product management or business development. And then they wanted somebody who had worked at a large enterprise software company. And it had to be like a branded one that had programs. And I think one of the examples they gave might've been Microsoft or that the headhunter gave me. And then they wanted somebody who um, had worked at a consulting firm, but it had to be, I think it was like Bain, Booz Allen or I don't think McKinsey was even on the list. I think it was just Bain or Booz Allen was preferred. And then they had to speak Mandarin. (laughs) It's like a universe goes down literally just to you. Is there anyone else who even could could check those boxes? Today there are more. But back then, like, not that many people were... So you see this description and and you think... I think, well, it'll be interesting to meet with a headhunter because he's going to meet with me no matter what. And he will probably have me meet with at least somebody on the team because he has to show them that he's found this person who matches their spec. And at that time, Kleiner Perkins was still very private, very secretive. It was before Andreessen came in and pushed everybody into marketing their services. So Mm -hmm. it was this, as you mentioned, this almost this black box, this ivory tower, this... um, elite group of people that you could never reach. And while John had come to tell me a few times, it was very, you know, limited. Mm -hmm. And I was curious to see, like, what is it like? What is it, you know, what is um, venture? Like, my first foray into interviewing with venture firms, I didn't really understand what was going on. Now I 
been at companies that had been invested in. I had met with some of the board members and some of the venture capitalists. Now I'd have a chance to really dig in and hopefully go through an interview process where I could learn more. Okay. And what's the nature of the role? It was, I can't remember what the exact title, I think technical assistant, but it was to um, help John. And John, John. So we're talking about John, John Doerr, who is, yes. uh, at that point, he was the, the GP, but he was also the founder, one of the founders. He had joined early on, but he was running the firm, okay. basically, and he was the VC with a golden touch. Right. He, the, the most successful, you could argue the most successful VC at that time yeah. in the world. And everybody looked at Amazon, which was a rocket ship then, Google, which was a rocket ship. Um, and then there was this, this slew of other companies that he had you know, invested in that did really well. And he was considered you know, one of the best internet investors. And that was where all the action was. Okay. So um, what happened next? So I went, I interviewed, and I got the job. I almost got the job, and then I said, you know, I, this is not for me. Really? Yeah. I, Why is I, that? You know, I thought it was interesting, but I was like, I like to get things done, and I'm not sure that this is the right place for me to actually get things done. So, like, enough meat, basically, for you to, for you to sink your teeth into. Yeah, at the end of the day, like, if I'm just helping John be more productive, what does that really mean that I've accomplished at the end of the day? And they said, you know... Do it for a year. If you don't like it, you can leave, and no hard feelings. But you know, you're not coming in as this role is described. You'll come in more senior. We'll give you more to do. You'll be able to invest, and they, you know, reshape the role for me. I thought. And you're like, great. This is a pipeline to, you know, one of the most coveted positions that exists in tech. Yeah, and it's and the risk is low. It's a year, right? I, I don't. And the brand obviously is, you know, you, you won't have a shortage of exit opportunities. You know, yeah, coming out and of you there. can see all the great companies coming through early on. Okay, so so then you sway towards I'm going to take the role. Yeah. Um, at this point, you've successfully made it behind this kind of wall of this black box. Um, you're an Asian lady. What did that mean? Um, to you, how many other folks had you seen kind of within the walls of VC firms across the valley at that time that that looked like you, or you know that you could identify with as being, you know, kind of had, having made it through? Yeah, I didn't think that way back then. Okay. It was um, I'd always been a little bit of an outsider, as we talked about, and in law, I did corporate law where there were very few women, and most of our clients were investment banks or companies where I'd be in rooms with like 10, 11 men all day long. So it didn't really bother me that I was going into this industry that was mostly men. It was nice when I joined Tell Me that they had so much diversity on the team, but that for me was a plus because I've been used to being in all of these rooms that were all mostly white men. Um, so when I joined I didn't really think about it. Okay. I was like, you know, it's more of the same. It's not great, but, you know, Aileen was, Lee was there. She was an Asian woman and she had worked at Tell Me as part of John's team. And she had, we'd gone to business school together and she was really excited about Kleiner Perkins. So you knew her, you knew her mm-hmm. decently well. Yeah. Okay. All right. So at this point, you're not thinking about it. And you know, I'm I'm an I'm an ex investment banker as well, so I'm very familiar with these environments where, 
mostly my white male, very, uh, at least on the banking side, it's a lot of machismo and the culture, et cetera. Um, not thinking about it going into it, was there an element of the culture where you said, after a while, you didn't go in there thinking about it, but you were like, I've always kind of been an outsider, but this seems to be even in that context a little bit more than kind of what I, you know, what I would have expected. It was, um, it, it was kind of early on, like there were things that would happen and you would see them and eventually you just realize, well, it's not that welcoming mm. and the opportunities aren't the same. Mm. So I could see Aileen and where she was going. I could see where Trey was going. I could see where I was going. I could see what they had done and what the men were doing. And it wasn't very different. Mm -hmm. But then different opportunities would not go to them. And, you know, when it came to being promoted, it was just a, a very different experience. And then you could just see, like, little things where... You know, we would have conferences and almost all the speakers would be men and the people who got to present um, and talk for the firm were the men. So the visibility was less. The, you know, it was across the board and you could just say, well, this is not um, an even playing field. But I really like working with entrepreneurs. You know, I'd gotten to invest in Flipboard with Mike McHugh from Tell Me Again. I was looking at some really interesting opportunities and I would focus my time and energy on that and just kind of overlook all the other things that were happening within the walls of Kleiner Perkins. So I did one of my last episodes with, was with John Thompson, who's chairman of Microsoft, uh, the board of Microsoft. Now he used to be CEO of Symantec for the listeners. Um, and we had a conversation about the idea of assimilation and as a, as a black male um, himself, kind of in IBM, and he was there for 28 years, you know, and rose to the, to the top ranks, this idea of assimilation. Um, and I guess my question for you is, in an environment that could be considered like an old, boy, old boys network, is it, in your, in your mind, more of an assimilation issue? Or is it more um, unconscious bias, or even sometimes conscious bias, where it's like, hey, there's nothing you can do, even if you assimilate into like our cultural norms, et cetera, to get past this point. Do you think, yeah. which, which one do you think is more? I'd say it was both. I mean, there, there were some people who really didn't know what I was doing there. And I don't think they thought, I don't want women. I don't think people thought that way, but I think there was a part of them that thought that women couldn't do the job. I think there was um, a sense that, you know, they wanted people that they could hang out with. And this was like their little group. And if you didn't fit in, then they would just not include you. Mm, okay. Right. So it's, you know, there, for me, I don't think there was a way for me to assimilate in. Right. There wasn't it wasn't like, oh, we can all go running, but you know, you're never inviting me running. Or we could all go skiing, but you're only intentionally inviting men to go skiing. Mm -hmm. Or you're having a dinner, but only the men are invited to the dinner. So I can't become a man. Um, and do you think that's and do you think that's uh, I, I wanna use the word protectionism, but do you think like there's conversations that guys wanna have as guys? And, oh, if we invite the women, now we can't have the conversation that we normally would have, which means we're not having as much fun or whatever the case may be. Do you think it's that? Or do you think it's more like 
unconscious kind of, hey, I'm just going to invite the people that, you know, I feel like I'll have the, the best time with. And it doesn't even cross my mind that I'm being, uh, you know, I'm excluding folks that should probably be here. There's one guy who used the words, like, when, um, I think it was Aileen called out, like, why are we having these all-male dinners? One guy said, well, one would kill the buzz. Right? So there was a sense of, there's this kind of bonding that we want to do, this macho bonding that isn't going to be possible. And I've heard that about some of these dinners that other VC firms have had that are all-male. So there's, a part of it is that, a part of it is, just what they're used to. Like I've been in rooms with, you know, they, they've been in rooms with just men and that's what they want to do. You know, that's why all their boards are mostly white men. That's why their teams are mostly white men. That's why their companies that they invest in end up being mostly white men. It's just something that is comfortable that they've done before that they don't know that many women. They don't know that many people of color. So where would they even find them? They only want to work with their friends. So all of the friends, the people that they've surrounded themselves with look the same as them and that's what they're comfortable with and that's who they know to bring in. Right, right. How did you think through that that whole process of, okay, what are you going to do about this? It was hard. It was more when I could see that it wasn't just me and it was happening to the other women that I thought were equally talented, equally competent, equally successful, equally easy to work with, um, if not easier, that you know, I realized this wasn't just about me and it wasn't my fault, it was more systemic. And that was a big wake up call for me. And at that point, I think I just wanted to leave. I just wanted to get another job, but it was hard because um, it is a very small environment. And at that point, you know, there came a point where I was just had enough and I just wanted them to change and acknowledge the problem so that they could fix it. How far away are we? And you've been on the inside of it, and so you know how how um, how strong kind of these implicit structures are. So VC is the hardest. The hardest. I mean, that is the hardest because it's such a concentration of wealth. There are people who are living in these little, tiny, enclosed groups where they don't hear other ideas and they don't see other people. So that's the area that I think is going to be the slowest to change. If you look at how they're changing, it's by bringing one woman onto their team, right? Um, I'm excited about these really um, awesome funds that are being started, Charles Hudson's fund, um, Troy Carter's fund, like that there are people who are starting their own funds, Arlen Hamilton, but it's, you know, those are small funds, it's going to take them a while to build up, and these big funds could just bring people in to help bring in role models, and it would be an easier experience and more visible for a lot of people. So the fact that you got to go out and start your own fund from scratch is not a great sign. Mm-hmm. I think there is this general aspiration for people to want to believe that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy and that they treat people fairly. I don't see it happening, but I think the fact that people think that that is the right thing to do is a good thing. And I am hopeful at Project Include, we're working with CEOs to try to bring diversity and inclusion onto their teams and into their organizations. And I see these CEOs who are not just aspiring, but are actually doing the hard work. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people doing a lot of hard work. And I think at the VC level, they're just not ready for it. 
and they don't think they need to do it. You talk to these successful firms, like, we've been successful as this team. You can't force me to do something I don't want to do, right? So there's this resistance to being told what to do. And then there's also a resistance to changing a formula that works. They're billionaires, they have a, or they have $100 million. They're able to tell people what to do. They're running you know, their worlds. Why would they change what's worked for them so well? Why? Why should they change it if they have a successful formula? How would you articulate that? It's not something that can last the way it is lasting today. I think people are getting more aware of the fact that it is such a biased industry, tech and especially VC. You see all the articles, you know, the only 12 women who are black have gotten funding of over a million dollars in the last four years. I think one more person got funding recently um, for Kit. So it's a, you know, so you see like the numbers are showing that there is systemic bias and discrimination in how the system operates. And you also can see how um, it, you know, the numbers within VC firms, the percentage of, you know, the handful of black men who are there, the, you know, even fewer black women who are in VC and people are realizing, hey, there's a problem, it's not good. And then if you look at who gets funding and you look at who's making the money, it's not fair at all. But then also if you look at the numbers and you see like people who have diversity on their teams, people who have diversity on their boards are performing better. I think over time you're gonna realize you're, as a company, if you are mostly white and Asian men, you're not gonna get access to those founders who are of color or, you know, not male. So how do you position yourself to succeed in the next 10 years when the, in, you know, the world is moving to you know, 75% people of color and women? And that concludes part two of the Ellen Powell episode of the Series B show. Definitely tune in for part three where she discusses um, an arbitrage opportunity for diverse venture capitalists uh, to pursue more reasonably priced investment opportunities with high growth potential. She discusses, you know, where do Asian men fit into the diversity equation in Silicon Valley where they're not as underrepresented. Um, then we'll, we'll, you know, finish off on Project Include, which is Ellen's current baby, so to speak, uh, which is focused on um, diversifying Silicon Valley through data-driven um, processes and engaging directly with startup CEOs. So really interesting stuff. Hope you tune in.